I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Rowenta. Goop is a company built in large part by working moms, myself included, so it's really no surprise that efficiency is a word you hear a lot around Goop HQ. We try to make the most of every moment, both at the office and at home. And the Rowenta handheld steamer completely cuts out the need for a particularly time-consuming chore, ironing. The handheld steamer's super turbo touch makes getting wrinkles out of everything from linen blouses and silk dresses to the kids' cotton t-shirts remarkably easy. And since it doesn't leave any condensation behind, you can steam and go without missing a beat. You can shop the Rowenta handheld steamer on goop.com. Hi, it's Elise, the Chief Content Officer here at Goop. Today's episode of the Goop Podcast is extra special because I get to flip the script and interview Gwyneth. Because today, September 25th, is our 10-year anniversary. So now, GP is going to let me ask her questions. Literally, whatever I want. And as Gwyneth knows, I love asking questions. It's my favorite pastime. It goes something like this. Did you ever make out with Keanu Reeves? What's for lunch? Will you sage my office? What do you think happens to our souls after we die? So find a cup of coffee, settle in, and we'll hopefully take you on a fun ride through the history of Goop, Conscious and Coupling, and a bunch of other stuff our PR team never wanted us to talk about. I love, you know, challenge and expansion, and I love to see what's possible, and I'm very curious, and... I always, you know, I'm in always in competition with myself. I always want to see what's possible. And I think that's actually healthy and beautiful. But I, you know, I always have to check myself that I'm not being motivated by kind of the darker piece of that. Okay, let's get to GP. 10 years. It's crazy. We were just looking at old intros and Apple was four when you started Goop, which is nuts. So go back to the beginning, go back to the kitchen, London. What were you thinking? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) There was a long preamble before I sent the first newsletter. I had really been wanting to somehow engage with this internet space. It was kind of new at the time still. I mean, it wasn't nascent, but there wasn't it certainly wasn't. It does. It didn't resemble what it does today. And it didn't seem like the opportunities were clear or defined for somebody like me to, you know, start something um, digital. And I think it was a few things. I think on some level, I was pretty burnout, you know, from, from the perspective of I had been doing three, four, five movies a year for 10 years. And I'm not sure that I really, I definitely had a sense of like, I was so fortunate to have gotten to the place in my career where I got to, but I was really burnt out and I wasn't enjoying it. And then I had my kid and I was like, I don't, I had like a full crisis where I really didn't want to go back to work on film. And I had all of this, I mean, you know me, I'm so curious. I'm so creative. I've so like, things are always running, coursing through my brain. And I wanted to do something and I didn't know, 
you know, how or what, or, you know, so I just sort of started asking questions to people like I normally do and finding different people who knew a little bit about the space. And, you know, at first I was going to do like a Gwyneth Paltrow.com. And I was like, why am I doing that? You know, that's not what I want to do. So by the time I got to the day where I pressed send, it had been like gestating for two or three years until I finally had put it together and found somebody to host the site and like help me with the graphics and get me on WordPress and all that. I mean, I look back and I'm like, what was I doing? (laughs) It's, and you kept doing it, which is amazing. I kept doing it. No, like you weren't making any money. Nope. I can only imagine how much you were spending. It was expensive. Yeah. And I just felt called to do it for some reason. And I can't, I, I can't necessarily tell you why, especially then, like, I don't know what, you know, I think I definitely, it was like this very, this feeling of this amorphous goal. Like it, I couldn't, it was like very opaque and I was sort of just moving towards this energy and I couldn't define what it was going to be or what, why I was doing it, but I was just very drawn towards doing it, if that makes sense. Totally. I think it's interesting. I mean, going back to when I met you, which was almost exactly five years ago. Well, I met you when I was pregnant briefly. Um, and then I, when I first came over and sat on the living room floor on that awesome rug. Which is now gone because my dog ruined it. <laughs> it I, what I was really kind of amazed by, one, I think like everyone, I just assumed you had sort of a tenuous grasp on it or that you were vaguely involved. So... First, I was blown away by how involved you were. And two... How involved? Who else would would be doing it? Well, I think there's this massive misconception. I mean, I talk to people all the time who are like, does Gwyneth come to the office? Does she do... Does she write any of that stuff? And I'm like, well, I, I don't... If she's not writing it, she's channeling it. I have no idea where it comes from. I certainly don't write it. You have like a very specific voice. But I was really struck growing up in magazines and packaging content and like the old paradigm, how you don't like you were so wonderfully resistant to that. Because like when I met you, I was like, we can just templatize this and turn this into a rubric. And you were like, nah, nah, let's just like one off everything, which is not efficient, but it's, <laughs> it's so much more interesting. And like that for me was like so much deprogramming and. The other thing I'm really grateful for is how you deprogram me from fear because being at your side, and I know it seems like we still get a lot of attention, but we got even more attention then. Every week it was like something. And I just remember having like almost a panic attack where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble. And you were like, no, this is like, get ready. This is what we do. Like, how did you get so comfortable with criticism? Well, I think on some level, you know, you never get comfortable with it. Like, it never feels good as a mammal, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean, to be, to have criticism leveled at you. But I think if you're really clear, which I think we are, about our mission and what we're doing and why we're doing it, you know, all of the examples of people in the past who have tried to 
shift the status quo and question like long held beliefs. They always take shit. Mm -hmm. And I started to get a taste of that well before I started goop, you know, even when I started just dabbling in different healing modalities like acupuncture or macrobiotics and I would see the kind of vitriol that would come from me saying like, hey, you know, I'm doing this to try to optimize my health or take better care of myself or, you know, doing yoga, which now all these things are so mainstream, you know. Um, And at the time they were so fringe. And I was like, this is so fascinating. Like, why are people so challenged by you know, somebody kind of exploring a spiritual practice or doing yoga or, you know, seeing how eating certain foods and eliminating certain foods might help the gut and the overall health. And it was like totally, it was very fringe at the time, but I was like, no, this is, this is cool. Like this is, these are really interesting questions. And we as a Western society have gotten so comfortable with taking a prescription medication when we are bummed out or, you know, like I remember too, you know, for me, I had postnatal depression, as you know, after my son and, um, and a doctor tried to put me on antidepressants and I thought, you know, if I need them, then yes, you know, I'll come back to it. But I want to first try and see, because of course, you know, I had done some research on them. And I'm, you know, I think they're lifesavers for certain people for sure. But I thought, you know, well, what if I went to therapy and I started exercising again and I stopped drinking alcohol and I just gave myself like a period of regeneration and I slept more and maybe that would, and it really broke me out of it. So I think I was always that person that was like, great. I'm so glad that this tried and true thing is here in case I need it. But I believe in the power of the human body to heal itself. And I believe that, you know, if we're harboring painful, unresolved things from the past, that also affects Mm -hmm. our body and our moods and our mental health. So I think it was just all those little threads from my life that came together and made it really clear to me, like, it's okay to try to you know, turn inward, listen inward and, and put faith that the body knows how to heal itself. If you are willing to sit with what's there and sometimes it's really dark and scary and painful and there are bad memories and it's like, nobody wants to feel those things. But I came to understand that if you delve into it, that's how you move through it. And I think because it's really hard to feel a lot of those things, you know, we at Goop get a lot of resistance for suggesting like, hey, maybe you should just try to feel this or maybe there's a different way of looking at it. You know, it's it's hard. It's like hard to do the work. And so I think people, you know, can some people resist that they don't want to hear that. Yeah. No, it's very uncomfortable. Discomfort is hard. And I think I think what's so interesting about you too is that Um, there's this perception that everything in your life must be easy, right? You're beautiful. You're rich. You have access. How could things be hard? Yet I don't know very many people who work as hard as you do. 
I try and exercise alongside you. It's a joke. Oh, stop it. You're so good. I, I was going to ask you if you wanted to dance with me at six <laughs> when we're done. Uh, <laughs> that would be fun. Let's do it. But you, you work so hard, which I think is so, like, you resist the, the easy, you resist the pill. Right. So where does that come from? How deep do you want to go? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think I was raised by two people who were from a certain generation. And um, I think expectations were really high. I think my my mother, probably without even knowing it, had really high expectations. I don't think she would even articulate it like that. You know, I think when that happens, you become unwittingly a perfectionist. And I think, um, somewhere it was imprinted upon me through various people in my childhood that, you know, in order to be special, I had to achieve something. So I think this is both a great outcome and a terrible outcome, because I think ultimately what we want our children to feel is that they are inherently unconditionally lovable and perfect in all their imperfections. And I definitely did not feel that way. So I think I got on this cycle of like, I need to achieve and I need to achieve like externally quantifiable wins in order to have proof that I'm something or someone or a good person. Um, And I think it was just my particular mix of of stuff. So I think that's the kind of the unhealthy part of it. And then I think the healthy part of it is that I really, I love, you know, challenge and expansion and I love to see what's possible and I'm very curious and I always, you know, I'm in always in competition with myself. I always want to see what's possible. And I think that's actually healthy and beautiful but I, you know, I always have to check myself that I'm not being motivated by kind of the darker piece of that. I think that's so true. I definitely relate. And I, oh, as, I know you do. <laughs> it's interesting thinking about the business and hiring and perfectionism and watching you and trying to see when you're trying to check. Like, when is it? It's hard. Like, when is it appropriate? Like, when is perfection an appropriate expectation? And when is it dangerous or unfair? Do you think about that at work? Are you telling me I should think no, about that? No, I'm just curious. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think it's I think perfectionism is never ever healthy um, or the goal, and it's something that I'm aware of and it's something that I work on. Um, but I actually think it's really destructive and the opposite of like the impetus behind why you're striving for something. It's like, let's, let's be in integrity and figure out like, what are we really striving for? Mm -hmm. Like that's worthy of something, but striving for perfectionism, it doesn't mean anything. No, it's true. It's just a way to create a system where you can flagellate yourself. Like there's no value in that. Mm -hmm. So going back to like the hard road and ways to do things that are easier. Mm -hmm. So, Conscious and coupling. Here we go. Here we go. This is Elise's favorite topic. (laughs) It was there. It was all your fault. (laughs) Why do you think it was so 
Well, besides the fact that it's a funny term. Right. Like, do you regret using it? And how do you do it? Like, how do you, how are you and Chris doing this? Well, do I regret consciously uncoupling? No, not at all. Even though the term is a bit dorky and, you know, in hindsight, I mean, I think that, you know, it's like, I've learned so much through this process. And I think sometimes, especially when, when I look back and at some of my most vulnerable moments, like I was super earnest and like, sometimes that's just cringeworthy, you know, where you're like, Oh, why did I do that? You know, but this was a time when I was in a lot of pain and, you know, I think Chris and I are very like-minded and that we really were disappointed that our marriage wasn't going to work and we weren't going to have like, you know, the thing where you're married to the parent of your children for the rest of your lives. And I think we really, you know, I looked around and when we were in the process of separating, because we were separated for a year before we announced it, and I asked a lot of questions, as I do, to people, like to children especially, um, of divorced parents. And there was one kind of resounding theme, which was, oh, my parents are fine now, but, you know, for three years they couldn't be in the same room. Or, you know, it took 10 years, but finally they got to a place where they could be friendly again. Or, you know, it took this tragedy to bring everybody to the dinner table. They hadn't spoken in 18 years, et cetera. And so I thought, you know, is it conceivable that we could not do that? Like the part where it's like, oh, they didn't, they hated each other for three years or 18 months or 18 years. Because that seemed to be the most injurious part of the divorce when I was talking to people. And when there's discord like that between parents, I think the children feel um, constantly in a state of betrayal. They never know which way's up. They they always feel like there's some lie because one parent has one version and one parent has another. And I think it's really hard on kids. So the idea was to not do that. And so we had, you know, incredible counsel in Habib, Dr. Habib Sadegi, who was just miraculous in getting us through this in a way that was, we were held so accountable. And I think honestly, that's, that's how you do it is you, you assume a hundred percent responsibility all the time as an exercise. And if you assume that you're responsible for the outcome of your life and your, the circumstances that you're going through, you can't be a victim And if you can't be a victim and blame the other person, then you're just there. Mm. So I think we really focused on that. And, you know, I also really focused on, like, I remember there was this one morning, this is years ago, and we had committed, you know, to having brunch every Sunday as a family. And we were in a bad place. And I was like, I can't fucking do this. Like, I'm not going to brunch. And then I remembered the commitment that I had made. And same with Chris, because we were both like, we don't want to be with each other right now. And then we like, I remember looking in each other's eyes and he made a joke and we laughed. And I was like, we can, 
like, we're going to, we're going to do it. And we hugged and we had brunch and it was fine. But I, I do think that, you know, when you say we really want to put the children first, like, what does that mean? What does that actually look like? If you're really putting a child first, are you making a snide comment about their parent? Are you rolling your eyes? Is it subtle? Is it energetic? It's just not going to, ultimately, it's not going to be for their highest good. Mm -hmm. So we really tried to make that commitment, and there were days we did better than others. But what I realize is if you're asking me if I regret announcing it, I mean, I think at the time, you know, we wanted it to feel like it was ours and that we were, so I chose to do it on our platform because, you know, I wanted it to feel contained and that the whole quote was there and I didn't want all the editorial comments and, you know, it was very, very painful. What I didn't realize at the time, and I think why it got some of the reaction that it did was I think that, you know, and I've told you this before, but I really think that they're on some level, what people heard was like, oh, fuck you. You're going to have a better divorce than, than I did or that my parents did. And then what they hear is then they did it wrong or their parents did it wrong, Mm -hmm. which is, was not the intent at all. We, I think we were just trying to outline like, Hey, this might be like, we had this really awesome doctor and he was our teacher and he mentored us through this. And he showed us that there was a way to do this that was possible. But I think, you know, I didn't think about it at the time, like that it could possibly be sending a message like why, well, then why didn't my parents do that? You know? And I think that's where the ire comes from. Mm hmm. Yeah. I think in general, I think that's, I, I feel like we spend a lot of time trying to understand being in the middle of it. We spend a lot of time trying to understand the reaction to it, but I think there's so much in that. I think often when we do stories, people, there is people, it's obviously not intentional and that it's not the idea at all, but people take it and they're like, Oh, you're impugning the way that I practice medicine. Right. Or am I hurting? You're suggesting that there's a better way and I'm not on it. Right. And that's, of course, as you say, it's not the intent, you know, what, but it, but I think what we have come to understand is that a byproduct of asking these questions, is there a different way of doing something Mm -hmm. is going to hurt certain people because of their own experience and where their consciousness is and what their philosophies have been. And, it's definitely not our intent, but we can't stop asking the questions. That's what we do. Mm-mm. And the resistance piece, you mentioned it earlier, and I think it's a really important part of it. And it's something that you've worked with me a lot on, like that, why are you resisting or why are you having this reaction? Or, um, you know, it's the relationship between the things. It's not, the problem is not there. It's the relationship between the two. And- right. It's again, what um, Dr. Sadegi always said, like how you relate to the issue is the issue. Mm-hmm. It's not the other person. It's not what they said. It's not your circumstance. It's how you're relating to it. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Like therein lies all the gold. Yeah. And so it's interesting to think about Goop and you as our leader as that 
and like, what is it? What is it about women asking questions? What is it about looking for other ways that is so, I mean, it's kind of obvious, I guess, but I think it's really obvious. What do you think it is? I think it's that. I think some people are fixed. I think some people are, I think it comes from fear primarily, Yeah. you know, like both fear of inadequacy or fear of not doing things right or not doing things well. Yeah. And I think, you know, in a more sort of meta respect, women are incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. and we have been taught to sublimate that power over generations in this, you know, our, our society is still largely very patriarchal. Mm -hmm. I think it's, in one respect, it's, you know, if a woman saying like, oh, here are ways, you know, that you could possibly tap into that power and tap into your own, like the own, your optimization of your own mind, body, spirit, whatever. This is how you can integrate with yourself. Like, I don't know, maybe in some deeply old cultural way that's threatening. Mm-hmm. And I think it's happening. I mean, we see it all around it. It's, it's the rise of the divine feminine and women yeah, baby. stepping into their power. <laughs> um, it's true though. So it's funny knowing your mom a little bit and obviously I never knew your dad, which makes me sad, but you your mom is not into fashion. Oh my God. It's no. fair to say that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. She's amazing. She's amazing, but she's definitely not a fashion plate. (laughs) So where did you come from? I'll tell you, my father was very into fashion and like beautiful things. You know, he was born in Brooklyn, raised in Great Neck, Long Island, grew up without money. You know, he always got his older brother's hand-me-downs and he thought it was really depressing and degrading to only get hand-me-downs. And so he had, from his childhood, he had developed this thing about new clothes. Mm. And, you know, I think when you grow up without money, like a nice new thing that's yours and yours alone, you know, it becomes so significant. And so, I mean, we giggle about it now, my mother and I, you know, he had these cashmere sweaters and from Ralph Lauren, the cable knit ones. And he always had these like a beautiful pink one or, you know, he always had something sort of outside the box because he was like this big, gruff, like tough Jew. And then he would have his beautiful pink sweater from Ralph Lauren and he would take it off and fold it perfectly and put it back in the plastic bag with cedar chips in the bag. And like he cared for his thing so much and, you know, had a beautiful pair of Gucci loafers and they always went back in the bag at the end of the day. And, So I think he taught me a kind of reverence for very special things. Like he would invest in a special thing and would kind of revere it. And, you know, and he loved art. He was a painting major at Tulane. And um, he just took me to every gallery and museum everywhere all over the world and would point things out to me and explain contemporary art and the old masters. And so I think he he really provided that template for me of like to appreciate, um, aestheticism and, and beauty and, 
So it probably came from him. He had really good taste. He was into all that stuff. Will you tell the story about when you were driving to the, I think you were driving to the Hamptons. Oh my God. (laughs) It's so long and boring. Don't you think? I love it. Okay. I'll try to tell it as quickly as possible. So this is like post his cancer surgery. And you know, we had been through a lot. He he was pretty compromised by this throat cancer that he had and the surgery and the radiation and he had lost all his salivary glands and it wasn't good. And he was like the love of my life. And we, we had been through a lot as a family with his illness and everything. And he had, um, this important checkup. I think it was like the two or three year checkup where they were doing, you know, the whole scan and everything. And I was driving out to East Hampton to stay with my friend Carrie Doyle for the weekend. And um, it was like early days of cell phone and there was no service. And he, you know, I went through the tunnel and I came out and there were a bunch of messages from him. And I was like, oh shit, oh no. And, you know, I was driving and trying to get there. And then he tried to call again. I tried to call him back. We couldn't get a line. And so as I approached Carrie's house, I was like, feeling very weak and shaky. And, um, I was like, I have to go inside and like sit, you know, gather my thoughts and get something to drink before I call him back. And as I walk into Mrs. Doyle's house, the phone, the landline rings and it's my father. So I'm like, Oh my God. So I go to the phone and I pick it up and he says to me, are you sitting down? So like my heart leaps into my throat, like tears spring to my eyes. And I'm like, what, what is it? And he goes, there's a 70% off sale at Frette in Beverly Hills. The manager knows you're calling. I have reserved Egyptian cotton sheets for your bed. I was like, oh my gosh, I thought you were dying again. So good. I love it. But he, that's how much he loved, you know, nice things. One of the other misconceptions about, sorry, about the readers of Goop is that people, they assume it's some sort of fan blog. And it's sort of the opposite of that. They think like, oh, it's all these readers who want to be Gwyneth. And it's not. What it is, and I sort of figured this out in early days looking at what people wanted. They want, like, they want your stamp of approval on things. Like if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for them. And so like as an editor, I think it's really interesting. And I think it's a really important distinction. They're like, I don't like, I just want to know where you go in Italy because I know it's the best. Interesting. Yeah. And so I think about like when you make products like Goop Label, which I buy almost exclusively now so that you don't send me home. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. It's, I love it. I really, it's like all I wear. And that seems to be the thing. Like it has to be how, what, what happens? Cause I am not invited to those meetings, but what, what are you? You're invited to anything you want. You can always (laughs) come. What happens where in the design? Yeah. Like when you're thinking about products, like what's the, what's the process? For, for label or for everything? Label, beauty, everything. Okay. So for label, the idea of, for doing it, I was I was in Barney's actually and I was trying on a blazer that was really beautiful. And I looked at the price tag and it was like a $2,800 blazer. And I was like, okay, I uh, guess I'm not getting this. And then it sort of, it started a 
process of thinking around like how how can like that's that's an insane amount of money you know that's for a blazer like and then I and then I started thinking about you know the direct-to-consumer models of something like an Everlane or a Warby and how that like if would could that model be applicable to a more aspirational made in Italy like designer quality product but you're not 6xing the price you know you're you're keeping true to that model and I saw a real white space there I was like what am I wearing that's easy that is like elegant it's feminine it's like always there's something a little bit cool. Um, I can wear it to work. Then I can wear it to the school for a swim meet. And then I can wear it to dinner. And just like, what is the, what is the answer for modern dressing, you know? And so we created G label and I think the success of it lies in there that it's, you know, true designer quality and, you know, it's still expensive relatively, but they're investment pieces. They're beautifully made. And, you know, you're talking about a dress for five ninety five instead of $3,000. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of all of the ideas for the products really come from white space. It was the same with our skincare where I thought, you know, I don't want to put parabens on my skin and endocrine disrupting fragrance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I'm a 40 plus year old woman. Like I want a great anti-aging moisturizer, eye cream. Like where is the luxury product that's clean, that's organic, that's non-toxic. And I couldn't find it. I was like, I don't want to go to the health food store to buy moisturizer. You know, I'm way too vain for that. (laughs) (laughs) So we made it. And it's the same with, you know, our bath soaks that are my obsession. Like I just thought, People who love to take baths love to take baths with salts, and but nobody knows exactly, oh, what are the healing benefits of frankincense or tea tree oil? Like, why does it work? What's in it? And I thought, let's design these solutions. Same with the vitamins. You know, vitamins were so confusing, and which is a good quality multivitamin. And, you know, a lot of fish oils that you buy are rancid, it turns out. Like, how can we create a vitamin protocol that really answers the needs of the modern person? Mm -hmm. So that's generally where it's come out of, like a need. I see a need for myself and run it by you guys and my trusted group and like that. You brought up being in your 40s and I think you I was at a dinner recently with some good friends and one was turning 40 or had just turned 40 and she's like it's funny I actually credit Gwyneth with like making me feel really good about it. Really? Which I think is That's so nice. Yeah, but I think it's really I think you're one of the people who has changed the conversation around aging. Wow. And what it means and how to do it well. I don't see that at all, but thank you. No, I mean, I think you talk about like getting an upgrade. Is that in your 30s or 40s? 40, when you turn 40. Oh, something to look forward to. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's so great. You really, I mean, I always say this, but I really feel like you get a software upgrade and you're just like, yeah, I don't need to like work so hard to please this person and I don't need to be at this party. I'd really rather be home and I don't need to chase something that doesn't bear any fruit and I don't want to be around this toxic person anymore and it just sort of changes like it's pretty amazing 
And you're in your 40s and you're getting married again. Are you excited? I'm beyond excited to marry my fiance. But going back to the nightmare of being a perfectionist, like a wedding is a perfectionist's hell. Yeah. Like, and it's funny because Julia, one of my best friends who, you know, she texted me yesterday actually. And she was like, it's just hitting me that there's such a distinction between being a bride in your twenties when your parents are dealing with everything than being in your forties and getting involved in the event planning. And she was like, we have to make sure when we get there that you turn the event planning switch off and you know her, she's like, and don't focus on the fact that the votives are in a circular arrangement (laughs) instead of in a line, like let it go. And I actually think it was really profound because, um, again, you can get caught so caught up in these things and it's like, I'm there to, you know, get married to the most incredible man. And so yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah. My wedding planner said two things that were really good. One, something's going to go wrong and you're the only person who's going to know that it's not going how it's supposed to. Okay, great. And second, she was like, do you think back about, think back to the last wedding you went to, do you remember the chairs? Yes, I do. This is where we're very different. We're really complimentary. What do you think that you've learned about your past relationships that you're going to bring to bear in this? I think like if I had to simplify it, I would say what I've learned is that I have um, a very deep inherent fear of intimacy. And it's something that I wasn't aware of for a long time. And now I'm aware of it and I'm committed to working through it and committing to intimacy as painful as it can be for me sometimes. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Like just not wanting to go there? Well, I think it's hard to understand unless you're avoidant in that way, which I am. And I think there are certain things that have happened in my life to make me sort of pull out of stuff and protect myself you know, the death of my father, for example, who was, you know, like the closest person to me up until that point and losing him and the aftermath of that and not wanting to risk anything. And I think that's why I actually had postnatal depression after I had my son, because that male line of energy was coming back through. And I was like, holy shit, am I going to like love this kid as much as I love my dad? And life is finite and this is too painful and I can't handle separation from my son ever and dealing with your own mortality, X, Y, Z. But I think I was raised to be avoidant of intimacy. It's, It's how I survived growing up. And so what it feels like is, you know, for a long time, really hard to make eye contact even with people. And I still catch my eyes going all over the place in a conversation, being scared of true vulnerability. And I think it all stems back to, you know, if you're, if you have a hard time with intimacy, it's really because you think on some level you're unlovable, you know? And so you avoid that discovery that the other person will discover that. And you, so you have all these magic tricks to sort of stay at arm's length Mm -hmm. and it just really wasn't serving me. And I felt like I was wasting that part of myself. Mm -hmm. And, um, and luckily I met a man who was incredibly capable of intimacy and really demanded it of me. 
And so as hard as it was, you know, he provided that safety and that space where I could explore what it was like to let all those many layers of armored down. We'll be right back. I get asked why I like to surround myself with working mothers all the time. The answer is simple. They use their time wisely, which in turn sends productivity levels through the roof. Like so many of our readers and listeners, they want to make the most out of every choice, be it at their day jobs or at home or for their families. And while there are a few household chores that someone might classify as efficient, the Rowenta handheld steamer makes getting wrinkles out of clothes just that, efficient. There are no ironing boards to deal with. All you do is place whatever you'd like steamed right on the bed and let the 1600 watts of high steam flow do its thing. There's no condensation left behind either, so you can steam and get out of the door in minutes. And since it's safe with any material, everything from your treasured silk dresses to tailored shirting to your kids' cotton polos is fair game. You can shop the Rowenta handheld steamer on goop.com. Okay, let's get back to my chat with GP. Have you ever made out with Keanu Reeves? No. Damn it. Sorry. Speaking of being lovable. Do you love Keanu Reeves? Yeah, Speed. I saw it like 18 times. Speed? Speed. Oh, Speed. I auditioned for that movie. Did you, you know did? that? Yeah, it was like I got right to the end, but I didn't get the part. You lost it to Sandra Bullock? Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Okay, you're the mother of a teenager. Tell me about it. Which is crazy. I know. How are you going to manage that? I don't know. I'm trying to learn as I go. I'm I'm a real on-the-job learner, as it turns out. <laughs> and this is yet another iteration of me having no idea what I'm doing, but having like being thrust into a scenario where I have to do it. Julia's older sister, Heidi Kadahi, Heidi Butts now is her name, she once said to me, when we were, you know, she was 10 years older than us. So we like worshiped her and asked her everything. And, um, I remember talking to her about when my kids were little and like, Oh no, you know, I don't know what, you know, when they were babies and she was sort of like, you know, zero to three, like, she's like, I I know this is going to sound crazy, but the time they're three, you're kind of done. And I was like, what? Like, (laughs) what do you mean by that? And now I sort of understand what she meant, which is I think so much of the critical wiring up and personality stuff and all that, and even somehow like value systems and stuff, like it all kind of goes gets baked in there really early. And and so it's really about, you know, having this 14-year-old, incredibly beautiful, tall, unbelievably smart, charismatic young woman. And, and seeing like, yeah, she's, you know, everything that was there was, has been there since, you know, for a long time. And I really think the rest is about her not, you know, I don't want her to be afraid of me. I don't want her to not tell me the truth because she's afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, I try never to shame them. I think that's like absolute poison. And I think it really shuts kids down. And I just try to create a really open dialogue with her. And I try not to project too much onto her Mm -hmm. and to get triggered by the 
faults in her that I, that I have, that I see in her and, and that kind of thing and really respect her as her own being and him too. And seeing the differences in the two of them. And, and I think, you know, my father was really good at this. He really, he really had strategy around parenting. You know, he was like, he really took the long view of it and like, who am I trying to put into the world? You know? So I really always operate from that, which I got from my dad. Like ultimately, who am I trying to put into the world? Somebody who is polite and open-minded and conscientious and, you know, can operate cerebrally to the best of their ability. And like, you want to put someone in the world who's going to make the world better in some way. Um, and I think if we try to reduce them in size or dim their light or anything, then we don't do that. So I just sort of look for ways to help them amplify the good parts and, you know, adjust the parts that need adjusting. (laughs) Are you, are there rules? Sure. In the, the Palchuk house? We say Faltro. Faltro. Yeah. I mean, it's like the Faltro-Martin mashup. There are definitely rules. I mean, I think both their father and I are very focused on them having good manners and them behaving properly out in the world and being respectful and having compassion. So all of those, you know, kind of rules around that. I don't have hard rules like you can only, you know, play 30 minutes of Fortnite a day or whatever. It's a losing battle right now. <laughs> um, yeah. But I stay pretty, you know, I stay fluid and I try to, you know, plan ahead and also be reactive. And, you know, it's funny. My dad said something once. I once apologized to him when I was in my 20s for being like such a bad 17-year-old and sneaking out and having a party when they went on vacation and all this stuff, you know. And he said, you know, you were bad in all of the ways you are supposed to be bad as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, the only time you need to worry about a kid is when they're outside the box bad. And you did everything wrong that you're supposed to do wrong. I love that. So I, I, I see, you know, I apply that a lot to my kids. Yeah. And I think the fear piece, you know, growing up in Montana, my parents were like, the primary thing was no drunk driving and no scary driving on ice. Oh my God. And as long as they knew I would call them right, and they would, they would get up and come and pick me up. Right. Like that was fine. My cousin Lacey did the same with her yeah. parents. Yeah. It was unacceptable. The other things were, were be such a betrayal that I would lose. I don't know what I would lose. I was, I never. Yeah. My father's things were no lying, no heroin, no tattoos. <laughs> you don't have any tattoos. No. My father told me I can't. I like that. Mine, my dad said no smoking because he's a pulmonologist. I know that's hard for you. No, and no why? motorcycles. I don't smoke. <laughs> I smoke like two cigarettes a year. Well. And I enjoy them when they're <laughs> happening. <laughs> okay. So we, how many people work at Goop now? Two, 15 or something? I think, I think so. And like, you don't have to be an operational CEO, but you've decided that you have to be, that you want to be an operational CEO. And now it's kind of clear that you have to be the operational CEO. Did you ever? Why do you think that? Why do I have to? You're the center of the brand and the business. So even when you're out of pocket, like the wheels just. (laughs) 
But don't you feel like it's all of us together? (laughs) (laughs) I feel, I really feel like it's all of us together. I mean, I understand, I think on some level, and I think that a founder led business Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not particular to me. I think to like the founder holds the vision so close to yeah. the heart. You can, you're one of the pleasures of working with you is that you're incredibly decisive and you don't waffle and you don't have amnesia. I mean, you'll waffle if like it's argued that you should reexamine something, but you make really fast and quick decisions and then you stick to them. It's a great gift. It's actually quite rare. Is it? Yes. It's very rare. I've definitely worked for people who are like, I have no, I don't remember that. You're like, we talked about it. Um, Sometimes I do that. Sometimes I'm like, I didn't do that. And then you show me the email (laughs) and I'm like, oh yeah. There are, we have, there's a joke actually that it depends on how quickly you respond to an email. Like sometimes Nora will be like, I don't think she fully read it because it was too fast. (laughs) When the inbox is overflowing, I'm like, that's fine. You're like, that's fine. She's like, I don't think she got to the bottom when I put in this insane request. Um, So, but I always read her emails very carefully. (laughs) So for reference, Nora runs our PR um, and would be desperate to be in this room, making sure we're not going off the rails. Off the rails. Saying anything too controversial. No, but that's the, sometimes you're so on top of it. But then other times I like, almost not test you, but I'm like, oh, she didn't, she couldn't have, she didn't look at that story. And you're like, well, do you remember when <laughs> Dr. Reed said blah, blah, blah? It's embarrassing. So how are you doing that? Like how, how do you manage? Because I obviously oversee one part of the business but then there's the whole product development part, the e-commerce part, the tech team, planning and analytics. Like, how are you doing this? It's, it's kind of confounding. What choice do I have? It's like, I'm, this is where I am. And it's, you know, incredibly challenging, but it's also so much fun, even on a bad day like today where, you know, there significant things are going wrong. Those challenges, those obstacles present such an incredible opportunity for imagination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like today, you know, we had a leadership team meeting where we were bringing up some difficult stuff. And I feel like we ended the meeting with like it, it, those things turn into essentially a daydreaming session, right? It's like, how are we going to fix this problem? And I think I enjoy the big picture parts of the business. And then I enjoy the little details. You know, I think it's critical that we make things of incredible value, whether it's content or product, um, you know, we're really trying to make things here, which will enrich somebody's life. Mm -hmm. And I take that really seriously. Mm -hmm. And so, and I'm really proud of, um, where we sit in the world of content. I think we're really at the forefront in a lot of ways. And you are certainly responsible for so much of that. And so much of, you know, this trailblazing content and finding these amazing people to talk to and interview and, but, you know, yeah, there are a lot of, there are a lot of aspects of the business. It's, you know, first of all, it's essentially two businesses, right? We have a media business Mm -hmm. and we have a commerce business and those two things in and of itself create, you know, sometimes a lot of 
tension. There's a tension between people have very different KPIs and people have very different intentions behind what, why they're doing certain things. And so it's also like trying to be a giant scale, you know, Mm -hmm. like how do we scale the business? I mean, scale, like a Libra scale, like, Mm -hmm. but also how does one scale a business while maintaining the integrity of the business? But as we scale, right, it's like you can be sitting in your kitchen and write an article about acupuncture or whatever. But when we get to the size, you know, it's, there's a, there's a responsibility that comes that's like bigger than, than when we started the brand. So there's all these things that I think about all the time and Mm -hmm. culture and the P and L and it's, it's, there's a lot. You talked about being like an on the job leader. And I feel like you've taught me how to be brave. I think you've taught all of us how to be brave and you're so exceptionally good at asking questions, which is so foundational to the brand. That's really how it started was like asking people questions, whether it was about pizza or about Eastern modalities (laughs) or friendship divorce. And it's been really interesting to watch you sort of, when I first started, you were in sort of the chief creative role and we're sort of outsourcing a lot of the decision-making to other people until you were like, I can't do that anymore. And I think you were intimidated because there's so many, it's totally intimidating. I speak to so many women who are like, I want to start a business, but like, I need to pay someone $50,000 to build a website. It's like, you don't. Um, I feel like I've watched you learn and sort of trail along in this, in knowing like that you can figure it out. And like, we're sort of just been doing that for four years, five years. Mm -hmm. What have been the biggest learnings? (sighs) Dude. (laughs) do we have another hour I mean we've made such huge mistakes you know like I think ideologically one of the biggest mistakes I made was realizing that this was a tech company four years into it you know like that what we're trying to do is not possible without leveraging technology in ways that are so sophisticated and um, so past my scope of knowledge or understanding. And um, so that's kind of a, a big mistake where, I mean, all my mistakes I feel like I've learned on the job, a lot of them have to do with the technology side mm-hmm. because it, obviously it wasn't my world. And, you know, we, as you well remember, migrated uh, from one ESP to another. And we really hurt the business when we did that. You know, we, I didn't know what questions to ask. I didn't know about warming an IP before you send a letter. You know, I didn't know any of that. Mm -hmm. And that's a mistake we never fully recovered from, you know? Um, and then there are, I think smaller mistakes, I guess, but they're also, they were also such great learnings, you know, like certain, I think some, sometimes certain people come into the business and, um, I think instinctually you think, oh, I'm not sure this is the right person for this culture and just being a woman and second guessing that and trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And, um, and I think some of those, some of that personnel stuff, has definitely like hindered growth at certain mm-hmm. points in the trajectory, don't you think? Oh yeah, totally. I think um it's like we need our like are you goop sort of 
qualifier <laughs> in the interview, and it's really it's like we're kind of animals. I like to say we're feral cats because you hate cats. I, um, <laughs> why are we feral cats? That's the worst analogy of all time. <laughs> Wild dogs. Coyotes. We're just focused. We're just workhorses. <laughs> can we? We can be workhorses. Why do we have to be like an ailing animal? Well, they're running free. They're just like outside of the bound, right? I hear you. Um, and people have to be really comfortable with that. And I think. I think. I think we work incredibly hard here. Yeah. But you know, then like the on the other side of that, then you know, I have like. I think we've built this team that is so special and so inspirational to me. And there's such a kinship there. And I know people don't always get along and always see things the same way, but I think we have an environment where we're able to communicate that stuff to one another. And I don't know. I just, I feel like I feel so lucky. I don't, I, yeah, I think the culture is, is really, interesting because it's we are it's, we're sisters and yeah. we you know one of the things we do is we speak straight yep and we try to be for each other and we do fight and yep. I think conflict is really healthy I don't um, fight with you guys but you fight with each other <laughs> sometimes but we get over it yeah we do it's never damaging it doesn't it's not damaging to relationships but I think that's also the quality of the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't come in, um, from a place of, I want to injure you or impugn your character or like, we don't fight dirty here. Yeah. Sometimes we say things that might hurt feelings, but yeah, I don't even know. Yeah. It's really interesting, but it's very, it's powerful. I think to watch women do that because I think it's, we're inherently very good at it. Yeah. And I think that we've been scared out of being confrontational. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. We've been taught not to be. Exactly. We were taught that it's unacceptable. But I think there are different qualities of confrontation. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, totally. it can be a really positive thing. And on some level, you know, the only conversations that are relevant are the difficult conversations. Exactly. And I think that we do it with a fair amount of grace. I think so too. Are there companies that you look to? Are there mentors? Like, is there are there signposts? Like, what's Goop in ten years when we're celebrating the twentieth birthday? I always like have trepidation about answering this question on some level because, you know, I think Goop has always really dictated to me who she is as much as I've tried to shepherd her into what she is and. Frankly, I think we're trying to build a significant business. Mm-hmm. We're trying to build a global lifestyle business that matters and that is um, impactful and new. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I never, I mean, I never sort of think, oh, I want to do it just like they did it. I, the, I, there are certain aspects of people's businesses that I really admire, and I have mentors that I really look up to and call when I'd have a specific question for that person. But, you know, I think we're, we're unique in a way. I don't, I don't know that I can name a contextual commerce business, like the way that. And experiential. And experiential too. Yeah. 
It's interesting that you said that tech was a learning because I, I don't I wonder if like four years ago tech was where tech ne- needed to be because I think that we have an opportunity as women to create one of the first sort of intuitive technological stacks, yeah. if, if you will, like working in media and I used to cover tech or I used to cover websites and stuff. And these guys would come and they'd be like, we're going to revolutionize the way you shop for jeans. And this is how it's done. I'm like, no woman's shops like that. It was that over and over again. And yeah. I feel like we actually, it feels like we're close to being able to create something that actually feels really feminine in a way that matches with the behavior that we all, like, it, I don't know. Yeah. I think, you know, this is something that I think a lot about too. And I think, you know, when, when a company starts, it is inherently feminine. A startup is always ambitious, creative, collaborative, open-minded, you know, it depends on this sort of flow of energy coming through it. And as it grows, it becomes more masculine. Mm. Processes get put into place, structure, HR, uh, you know, everybody's working to a revenue number, Excel spreadsheets, like all that stuff is like of the masculine. And I think I would love to be a company that really continues to lead from the feminine Mm. And I believe in process and I believe in spreadsheets, even though I hate reading them. Um, But I think it's important as we scale to not lose sight of that feminine energy that runs through. And so I think that does inform the way we think about how people shop or consume content or any of those touch points with the consumer. Finally, today, 10-year anniversary, opening a store in London – Back where it started. Oh my gosh. Why did you want to go home? Home to London? Yeah. London is such a huge part of my adult life, you know? Even before I moved there permanently, I had done like seven films and a play there. I was there all the time. And then I had my kids there and my my their whole young life there. And um it's where the idea for Goop came to me. It's where I first set up shop, you know, six years in when I decided to try to monetize it. My, the first team was there. You know, it feels like the right thing to do, to go home and open a store there and celebrate that big, full 10-year circle. I, can't, I actually cannot believe it's been 10 years. It's so surreal. Thanks so much for joining me and Gwyneth today. It sounds cheesy, but it's hard to think of a better way to spend Goop's 10th anniversary. GP is going to be back on the podcast on Thursday with one of the funniest people alive. Sadly, I wasn't invited to the party, but I can say that you don't want to miss this one. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard today, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just tap subscribe. And if you're looking for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. We'll see you soon.